As we continue working our way, uh, kind of chapter by chapter or theme by theme, through the book of Daniel, we find ourselves in the last kind of narrative style part of this book. Uh, there will be one more in, in, in chapter 9, but we're going to pick up the pace a lot starting uh, next Sunday. So this is sort of our, our, our last kind of park and work our way through a chapter slowly. The, most of the rest of the book is prophecy, um, and, and there's a lot of debate around that. But i got to be honest, I'm, I'm a little bit sad. The, these stories are so fantastic um, that the fact that, that this is our last kind of story to work through like this, I've really enjoyed uh, studying this book and, and learning about God. This is the last kind of account in Babylon. Uh, that we find here. And actually, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not in the story. Uh, we're, we're not actually sure where they are, uh, the text we're going to look at this morning. So let's grab our Bibles and we're going to jump in. Uh, if you don't have a Bible today, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. Um, we say this every week. If you don't own our Bible, please keep that. That's our gift to you because uh, we think really highly of this book. As a matter of fact, we have a creed that we say together about this book uh, every week before we dive in. And so if that's where you're at in your spiritual journey, then join with us in that declaration we'd ask this morning. Let's hold up our Bibles and let's say this with conviction this morning. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. Please turn to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. This morning, we are looking at what we call the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel and the lion's den. And I've been preaching since I was a teenager on a regular basis. And yet I've never preached this story before, ever. Uh, sometimes there's this tendency in the familiar passages of scripture to think, oh, people already know about this or somebody else will preach on this. And so often some of these kind of iconic stories, one of the most well-known story, one of the most well-known stories in the whole Bible, and I've never preached this before. And so uh, I've, I'm excited to get to talk about this today. What I want to ask is this, and there's no, if you can't raise your hand, don't feel like I'm calling you out. This is not a, a trick question. This is a genuine question. I'm curious, how many of you would say, when it comes to the story of Daniel in the lion's den, you would say, I am very familiar with this story. Like, I could tell this story with just looking at maybe a little bit of the notes. Yes? Okay. So, most of us. Okay. How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about? You've not heard this story before. Anybody who, this morning, this will be your first time hearing the story? Anybody? Okay. A few of you. Awesome. Awesome. Um, how many of you would say, I think I know the point of the story? You don't need to raise your hand for that. I'm curious if you think, no, I know what like the big idea is, because um, I'm curious when we get to the end, if you'll still have the same answer of why is this story recorded? I know why it's one of the most amazing stories, because it's incredible, but what's the point, right? What's, what's, what's the Lord trying to tell us? So let's jump in so we can work our way through this chapter, because I, I want to get to the story. Number, verse number one, it pleased Darius... To set over the kingdom, if, if you've been walking through the book of Daniel with us, reminder from last week, uh, we, had a, we had a change not just in who the king was, but who the kingdom was defined by. Uh, this went from the kingdom of, of Babylon, right? We had Nebuchadnezzar who had the image several weeks ago. We talked about that story where he saw this, um, this giant statue with different metals that made up the head was of gold. And that was supposed to represent his kingdom. But it was going to be overthrown. If you remember the arms and the chest, right? Two kingdoms that would become one. That's the Media and Persia would come together, the Medes and the Persians. And that happened last week. King Darius... Uh, who uh, was from media, was set in Babylon as the ruler. All that happened last week. So he, once he became ruler, set over the kingdom 120 satraps. That's not a word that we use uh, in our language, but you kind of think of that as like the old school, like small town mayor, right? He's, he's the regional ruler, uh, maybe like the governor, um, to be throughout the whole kingdom. So he's, he's putting some structure into this thing. He's got an org chart. First thing he did is he went into the conference room and he started designing an org chart to organize this massive, expansive kingdom. Over them, over those 120 regional rulers, uh, over them three high officials. So we're getting even more organization here, of whom Daniel was one. 
to whom these satraps could give account so the king might suffer no loss. How's he going to rule well? He's going to get other people involved, right? Uh, which actually makes sense. Um, then Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So he's already about to get a promotion to be COO, right? He, he is, he's climbing the ranks here. And I, I just want to pause here for just a second and say this. Don't forget, we, we discussed this last week. If you've not been with us, you can go on our YouTube channel and get caught up, um, or you can read it. Um, uh, either way, uh, this is probably more interesting than hearing me talk about it, so you, just, you can read it for yourself. But we talked last week, Daniel's not a teenage boy anymore, right? He's well over 80 years old. And, and this incredible story of Daniel in the lion's den is not actually the youthful, young-looking face that you see in our artistic rendering here. Or... Maybe he had great skincare products. I don't know. But it's more likely that he didn't quite look that young. He's in his middle 80s. And so I think it's important for us to say this. We, we're a pretty young congregation. And I don't want this to be missing. Old people can do awesome things that make a difference in the world. Right? Like there's not... Just like we're supposed to not let anybody despise our youth, we should not let anyone despise our lack thereof. Right? You are useful to the world. You matter. You might not have the same job. Maybe you've retired or maybe your role has shifted or maybe your kids seem really independent and you're not sure what your role is supposed to look in life anymore. And I just want to tell you, you matter to planet Earth. You matter to the kingdom of God and you still have a great difference to make. I know I've said this a lot. The fastest growing uh, category of missionaries being sent to the world today are people who are post-career. The people who are retiring and who are leveraging that freedom to make a difference around the world. I'm just telling you, for all of you who've lived for a minute, don't let anybody tell you you're done. As long as there's breath in your lungs, God's still got a calling on your life. And we are part of that calling. We need you. You matter to us. You're not unimportant. But that's not the point of the story. I've got to say this. I just remembered this story, and I'm going to say this completely unfiltered and, and not having thought through it. So this might be interesting. Um, when my father-in-law was here recently, he was talking about how he couldn't get the QR codes to work. And he's like, they use those stinking things at my church back home too. And then he said something about, you young people have just left us all behind. And, and, and I, he was joking and laughed when he said it. And I was like, that's not cool. Don't say that. And he was like, Chill, man. I was just joking, right? And, and it was actually a, a moment. I said, no, it actually would break my heart if anybody 15 minutes older than me thought we're leaving them behind with how we do church here. So if you ever need help with a QR code, I just want to say, please see Nikki Briley after the service. She would be happy to help you with that. Okay. Verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint. They looked for it. Like they're looking to find a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. And I just want to pause here and just say this. Cancel culture isn't new. We actually don't have uh, the, the beginnings of cancel culture in our generation. It's actually existed since the fall. Adam's confronted in his sin and goes, it's the woman that you gave me. He knew two people. He canceled them both. He knew God and Eve. That's it. Cancel culture isn't new. And I just want to say this. It's the cheapest and easiest thing to do. To cancel somebody because of their bad day. And I just want to say this about cancel culture. It's not just cheap and easy and kind of gross. It is anti-gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ seeks out and looks for the best potential in broken people. Otherwise, we'd all still be lost, by the way. Me and you. The gospel is anti-cancel culture. Now, don't get me wrong. I think leaders need to be held accountable. Part of cancel culture is we've seen abuse of power or we've seen people sweep things under the rug that need to be brought into the light. And I'm not talking about healthy accountability in any way, shape, or form. But I'm saying there's this movement to find leaders, specifically Christian leaders, who've made a mistake. And so I just want to make it easy this morning and just tell you, if you're looking at my life to find a mistake, I can help you with a huge list of them. I don't know why, and I believe church hurt is real. I've been hurt by the church way more than I've been hurt by people in the world. 
church hurt is real, and I, I understand that I am sensitive to that. But looking for a way to attack every leader in the body of Christ today is harming the advancement of the gospel. Part of leadership is you're going to be looked at with criticism. It just comes with the job. And that's not just true in the church world. If, if you hope to climb the ladder where you are, just know that the fine print of that in a broken world is you're now a target for criticism. Daniel was a target for cancel culture and a target for criticism. But look what it says. They could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. And here's what I have to say. When I examine my life, I can't say most of that. There's a lot of fault. There's a lot of area for complaint. There's plenty of error. But I do pray that if my life's examined, they'll say, but he showed up tomorrow and continued to serve the Lord. He was faithful. These men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. What an awesome criticism. (laughs) The only way I can find in anything to complain about you is that you take your God too seriously. Wow. I think that was meant as a criticism, but what a compliment. Wow, what a testimony. And by the way, he's not just like serve the Lord for a minute. These guys are new on the scene, but they're, asked, they're looking for an area of complaint. So they're seeking out his reputation. And we know from reading this book that he has been in the public eye for over 60 years. For over 60 years, and depending on how we timeline this, maybe 70 years, he's been on some form of public platform, living in a fishbowl, his life being looked at. What a great testimony. That's pretty remarkable. Verse 6, these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king, live forever. That phrase is important. Mentally underline that because we're going to see that a couple times this morning. O king, live forever. Uh, It's, it's, yeah. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. A couple observations. Because they're appealing to his ego, he thinks this sounds like a good idea. I just got to tell you, this sounds terrible. He can't say, go ask your mother for 30 days. He can't say, ask someone else. Only requests will be made of you. Does this sound like a win for him? I don't know what's going on here. Clearly, bad judge of character. I also would point this out. That the punishment is that they would be cast into a den of lions. And I know some of you don't like the fact that I hate on cats so much. But I think it is important. The Bible is the word of God. I think it is important that we pause and realize that an evil pagan king couldn't come up with a worse torture than you have to be in an enclosed place with cats. That's God's word. I'm just telling you, like, that's not me. When we were at... um, our orphanage in Nigeria, a place of Africa, um, is a ministry out of our church. Um, so it's a ministry we support. It's, it's our ministry, uh, just like Temple Christian School and Temple Days. And we were visiting there uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, just recently, our missionaries on the ground who lead that great ministry told me, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, we got a cat. And I'm like, I'm leaving. I'm out. Put me back on a plane. And then they go on to tell me, here's the thing about this cat. It's deaf. And I'm like, how would you know? Cats don't listen to anything you say anyways. I'm convinced the cat is lying. I kept sneaking up behind it, like trying to to out it as like a fake deaf cat. But I think it was actually deaf. And I would feel bad about that if it wasn't a cat. Okay. (laughs) Now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document, so that it cannot be changed 
according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. We're going to see that phrase a couple times in this story, the law of the Medes and the Persians. History tells us that there was such a thing, that a king could not unmake a law that he made. And, and, And historians would tell us there was probably two reasons for that. One is these kings had incredible authority but were very impulsive. Right? So if somebody cuts you off in traffic, you make a new decree. Everyone who cuts me off in traffic shall be shot. And some of you are like, that's a great idea. They couldn't just make a a, a knee-jerk decree. Um, And then the other reason that they couldn't do this is because they were viewed as deities. They're gods. And so the god couldn't change his mind. He couldn't make a mistake. Right? And so um, once you make a rule, it can't be changed. Because gods don't make mistakes. All right. Verse number 9. King Darius signed the document, the injunction. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. That phrase is so important. It changes the whole story, maybe in ways we don't realize. Meaning Daniel didn't just say, I'm taking a stand against this political decision that was made, and so now I'm going to start a new thing. Right? I I, I think it's interesting that there are people who are deeply offended that there's not prayer in public schools, and yet when you ask them about their prayer life, they don't have any answers. Right? We have people who are angry that... The Bible has been removed. And the question is, well, how's your relationship with the word? (laughs) Right? Daniel didn't start a new thing in order to make a political statement. He just did the same thing today that he did yesterday. He was in a pattern of prayer. The rules just didn't change that. And we read this again and again throughout this book. In Daniel chapter 1, when he had this uh, decree to eat forbidden food, the first thing he did was pray. In chapter 2, the king was going to kill everybody, all the wise men, because nobody could interpret his dreams. So Daniel prayed. In chapter 3, when his friends were being forced to bow down to the golden image, what did they do? They prayed. It seemed that whenever Daniel hit problems, he turned to prayer. Like this response was like breathing for him. Trouble, seek God. Difficulty, pursue his presence. Hardship. Seek the face of God. Which demands a question this morning. When I face hardship, what is my instinct? What's my habit? So you know how in, on Google, if you begin to enter something into the search bar, it autofills for you, sometimes ridiculously. It's not random in the same way that your iPhone tries to finish your words for you. It's called predictive text. It's artificial intelligence who has studied your habits and your behaviors on your devices, and it thinks it knows where you're headed. And and really kind of what, what difficulty and struggle and fear and conflict can do is just autofill our hearts of what our pattern has been. What have, what have our habits been? In a week or two, we're going to talk about um, the, the next part of that statue is going to take over. Uh, the armies of Greece are going to invade. And one of the big influencers in the life of Alexander the Great uh, was a philosopher that you've heard of called Aristotle. And he said this, excellence is not an act, it's a habit. And he's a smart guy. But I think that's way more true when it comes to my relationship with God. It's not the big, giant deed. It's just the small little routines. It's the habits of grace. Hardship does not determine our character. It just reveals it. Can we all admit that during the pandemic, pandemic, we were not at our best as a culture, as a society? And it was interesting, many of us were like, I can't believe what COVID did to us. And I just don't think that's what happened. I don't think COVID changed us. I think COVID revealed our hearts. 
Hardships don't determine our character. Habits do. And let me say this. Those of you who've been hearing me preach for a long time, you've heard me say this over and over again. I do not believe that the purpose of God's word is behavior modification. Every other religion is about how you try harder to do better. That is not the Christian message. The narrative of this book is not behavior modification. The message of this book is belief modification. That we would see God for who he is and the rescue of his grace and trust him more today than we did yesterday. We believe him more. But hear me right now. Belief that doesn't modify behavior is not true belief. So the the goal of the Bible is not to get you to act different. It's to introduce you to God. But if you believe he is who he says he is, we will behave differently. We will trust him more in ways that will shape our responses. The goal of this story is not that we would sit back and be impressed by Daniel's response. It's that we would be inspired by Daniel's routines to seek after God. He did not make a decision on this day that he was going to start something new. Turn a leaf. No, he just did the same thing he did yesterday. And I I just want to say specifically to the young people. So I talked to the old people for a minute. Let me talk to the young people just a minute. And let me just say this. If you, I'm not talking to you, Stan. (laughs) He leaned forward. (laughs) Aw. We need a sermon on (laughs) self-awareness. Let me say this to the young people. If you wait until you hit a difficult situation to decide what you're going to do, it's too late. If you wait until you're sitting in that classroom and the, the professor mocks the gospel and you think maybe you'll find the courage in that moment to stay true to your faith, it's, it's too late. Those determinations are determined now by little daily habits. It's determined by what you do tomorrow when you get out of bed. If you wait until you're faced with with, uh, sexual temptation to decide that you're going to do right, it's too late. Daniel just did today what he did yesterday. Small, consistent habits of obedience. That blank in the search bar of our hearts will not autofill with seeking God if that's not been a habit. Or at least it's much less likely. And here's why that matters so much. We're going to get back to the story in a minute, I promise. Ultimately, where I turn or what I seek after in hardship actually reveals my belief, my faith. It's actually not a behavior response. It's a belief response. Here's what I mean. If when hardship confronts me, I seek after God, it's because I believe in him. And if I turn to me, it's because I actually believe in me. Prayerlessness is an indicator on the dashboard of our life that we have heightened faith in self. Verse 11. Then these men came by agreement. This is the third time we see that they were in agreement and this is not the point of the story, but it is important to say that the, the pagans in this story are more, are more united than many local churches. But that's not the point of the text. They found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning this injunction, O king. Did you not sign an injunction? Seriously, you were there. You proposed it. You wrote it. That anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. The king answered and said, The thing stands fast. According to the law of the Medes and Persians, it cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you've signed. But makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed. And he set his mind to deliver Daniel. He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. By the way, we see that that opposite response, right? 
Daniel was distressed, he sought God. Darius was distressed, he sought himself. The most powerful man in the world, with the most resources in the world, had nothing. Verse 15. Then these men came by agreement, there it is again, to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians. Yes, we know. We've said this three times, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Verse 16. The king commanded, Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, not that you just started serving because of my decree, deliver you. Verse 17, And the stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. Does that sound familiar to those, those of us who have a Jesus-centered worldview? A stone was rolled in place. Yeah? And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's. That nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. <laughs> no diversions were brought to him. I love that word, by the way. I don't know what version you're using, but I love the word diversion. I like the fact that the pagan didn't binge Netflix, but fasted. But that's not the point of the story either. Sleep fled from him. That's what happens when I look to me to save me from me. Then at break of day, ooh, we recognize that phrase. We love that phrase. At break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. This is not very kingly. He's running and he's crying out, king declared to Daniel, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? I heard that he delivered your friends from a furnace. Was he able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel said to the king what everybody's supposed to say to the king before they say anything else to the king. Oh, king. Live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. They have not harmed me. Because I was found blameless before him. And before you, O king, I've done no harm. J.D. Greer said this. He said, it seems like everybody in this story was awake all night except for Daniel. The jealous men, we can only assume, were probably partying all night long. We know the king was up all night worrying. If Daniel's friends were still living, we believe they would have been up all night praying. We know the angel was up all night protecting. Daniel was the only one who got a good night's sleep. Verse 23. Then the king was exceedingly glad... I love that we started off this morning with the song, This is Amazing Grace. I'm actually going to mention that in chapel on Wednesday, but for over 200 years, that's been like the anthem of the Christian church in this part of the world. Amazing. But it's almost ironic, right? Because I just confess that for many of us, the amazement has long worn off. May we be in a fresh way amazed. He commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. Daniel was taken up out of the den. No, no kind of harm. That's the exact same phraseology that's used about there was not even a hint of the smell of smoke on the Hebrew children when they came out of the furnace. No kind of harm was found on him because he trusted in his God. Because he's the star of the show. This is about his God. It's about him. This next verse is difficult. We're going to give context to it, so hang with me here. Then the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. 
they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. That's disturbing. Why is that included in God's word? And and here's why. Because it actually happened. And God's word is honest. I think it tells us a couple things. I think it tells us that the lions did not forego the dinner of Daniel because they were full. Right? These were not a bunch of well-fed lions that just weren't hungry. I think that's part of why God wanted us to know that this is how this happened. Because we have a tendency, we have a tendency to diminish the supernatural. And I think he wanted it to be unmistakable to us. These, these were not well-satisfied cats. But I also believe it's included because this was sadly normal in the pagan custom of the day. It, it seems unfair and cruel that wives and children would be included in this punishment, let alone that they would be thrown in. And it's true. The Bible's not condoning this. The book of Ezekiel clearly forbids this kind of thing where punishment's carried out from the sins of the parents. But this was the common practice of pagan kings. They wouldn't just kill their enemies. They'd killed everybody connected to them. It's part of the reason that Darius is seated on this throne. He killed Belshazzar and everybody related to Belshazzar, including a mentally handicapped brother of his that was no threat to the throne. This was normal. So those of you who were with us when we went through the book of Acts for a couple months, for a year and a half, one of the things that we talked about in the book of Acts is we have to read the Bible with discernment about what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. What is God just describing happened in a moment and in a place versus what is he saying? This is what I want you to continue to do. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. Back to the story. Verse 25. Then King Darius wrote, and, and this is the heart of where we're headed, and this is actually the point of the story. The point of the story actually isn't Daniel or what happened to him. The point of the story is who is Daniel's God in whom he trusted? King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I made a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God. Enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. And if that's not good enough news, he delivers and rescues. (laughs) He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. It's interesting when we respond to difficulty by looking to God, the people watching us will look that direction too. This morning after church, if you come out and talk to me in the foyer, and if as you walk up to me, I'm staring at one of our little pendant pendant lights in the foyer intently. You walk up to me you're probably going to look up at whatever I'm looking at. And if you don't right away and you talk to me and I don't look away from the little pendant light, you're eventually going to be like, what are you looking at, man? That's what we do. We're curious. We we want to see what somebody's amazed by. And so if when difficulty happens, our tendency is to seek after God, just maybe the people watching our life might look his direction too. That's what happened in this story. Darius just turned his attention to the same place Daniel had been looking. And what he saw changed his life. 
It's interesting, this chapter starts by a legal decree saying you can't pray, and then it ends with a sermon from a pagan king. I want you to notice what's said about who our God is in this text real quick. Because this is the point of the story. I'm going to run through these real fast, but hang with me. The first thing that God is described as in this text is universal. He's global. This decree is made, verse 25, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. By the way, King Darius's reign did not actually reach that far. He's decreeing beyond his capacity to explain that there's a universal God that's way beyond my reach. Meaning, contrary to what our worldview meant as a Babylonian, and contrary to the American worldview of our culture today, our God is not a tribal deity. That we decide. You have your God, I have mine. They have theirs over there. You have your truth, I have my truth. What Darius got awakened to when he watched Daniel come out of that den of lions is, there's one God. There's one God and there's one truth for all people in all time at all places. One of the most baffling phrases of our culture is, this is my truth. And I just got to tell you, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as your truth. Truth belongs to the God of gods, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Truth is not private. Truth is not determined by my feelings. There's truth. As a matter of fact, there's truth, and then there's everything else. And that everything else is only true when it aligns with truth. And when it doesn't, it's false. I know that's close-minded. But I believe he's the God of all peoples, all nations, and all languages that dwell in all the earth. He's universal. Number two, he's alive. He is the living God. And for you and I, that might not awaken us or quicken us or stir us in the way that it would people in this moment. People who'd only ever known a God that they made with their own hands. Gods that are carved out of wood or stone. Gods that you, gods that you carry from place to place. They can't speak. They can't see. They can't hear. They can't relate to us. And Darius is like, no, no, no. I believe there's a true, living, active, speaking, involved God. It's the reason the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is so important. We'll, we'll talk about that more in just a minute. He's the living God. Not just today, but forever, because He's eternal. Enduring forever, His kingdom shall never be destroyed. Like, He's not just alive in this moment, there will never be a moment that exists where the living God is not alive. So again and again, we had this phrase in the text today, which we've noticed in our previous weeks as well. Oh, king, live forever. And then we turn the page and that king's dead. There's only one king who's going to live forever. He's eternal. So he's universal. He's living. He's eternal. And he's sovereign. His dominion shall be to the end. It's not just that he's alive. He's in charge. <laughs> like he doesn't just exist. His dominion is unshakable. So if there's a universal God, living God, who will always be, and who will always be in charge, 
What if he isn't good? What if he's a monster? And yet, verse 27, King Darius is like, no, 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 he's good. He delivers and rescues his people. Like this good God is in the business of delivering and rescuing. Here's the next one. The next, the last one. And he's near. Theological term here is he is imminent. He is the one who works signs and wonders in heaven. Of course he does. And on earth. Like he's not just enthroned in the heavens doing what he wishes. That's true. He's also on earth. Working among us. Shutting the mouths of lions. And delivering his people. The farness and the nearness of God. That we don't serve a God who's uninvolved. Who's removed. Not engaged. But is actively at work in our world today. And actively at work in your life too. This universal God. This living, eternal, sovereign, good, close by God. Here's what else he is. And this is the last observation. And this really is the point of the story. He's the Savior. He's the Savior. He alone is the Savior. He saved Daniel. Good for Daniel. I got to tell you this morning. He saved me too. There's really three responses in this story. There's the response of Daniel to the decree. There's Darius's response to God's rescue. And there's our response for knowing about it. <laughs> and that's the response that matters most to me today. Do we see him as Savior? I know I've said this almost every week, but I'm going to say it again. The danger is to read this story and be so amazed by the details of it that the takeaway is, dare to be a Daniel. That's not the point of the story. That's also not the part of any narrative on any page of Scripture. The Bible was not given so that we would have heroes to emulate. It's that we would see a Savior Who's worthy to be adored. And by the way, if we try to copy the example of Daniel or David or Ruth or Esther or the Apostle Paul, we're probably going to end up pretty discouraged. Daniel's actually one of only three characters in the Bible where his flaws aren't written down. He apparently was pretty good dude I can't write a page of my story without failure no the point of the story is that we might see that the coming savior is alive and active that Jesus is the greater Daniel <laughs> and there's some interesting things where, where our hearts are stirred towards the coming Messiah in this story like I said, Daniel's one of the three men in the Old Testament where there's not mention of sin in their life. But Jesus lived a life fully without any hint of sin. Both Daniel and Jesus had political leaders who actually advocated for them in their final hours. Not Darius, but Pilate. Both Daniel and Jesus had jealous people drum up false charges against them. Both Daniel and Jesus were thrown behind a rolled stone, sealed with a government seal. Both Daniel and Jesus had people running in the morning light to see him. And both Daniel and Jesus walked out from those tombs. Here's a big difference. Eventually, Daniel died. 
and it was the end of his time. But we believe Jesus defeated death once and for all when he walked out. There's another big difference too. Sally Lloyd-Jones pointed out that when Daniel came out of the lion's den, he came out alone. No one else was saved by his saving. But when Jesus walked out of that tomb, we got to walk out with him. (laughs) He brought with him the host of people who would be redeemed through his death and resurrection. This past Friday night, there's a group of us who were on a rented charter bus on the way back from Lubbock. Yes, I'm telling that story. If you're new to Temple, I just have to confess something. We are not proud of this, but we just have kind of a reputation with buses. We just own it, man. Um, when you try to be as affordable, even to our own detriment, as we tried to be as a school, we're probably not going to have the fanciest buses in town. It's just a reality of things. We have so little faith in our buses that a lot of times when we have a long trip, we rent somebody else's buses. We did that Friday night. A whole group of us, parents and some of the cheerleaders, we were in a beautiful, it seemed quite new, very clean, very nice and not cheap charter bus. Do I seem a little mad about the charter bus? I'm a little mad about the charter bus. As we are driving in the pitch black dark through West Texas on the way back from Lubbock, a lot of people on the bus were asleep. I was on my iPad watching game one of the World Series. How about them apples? Man, that was a good game. And right after the walk-off home run in the 11th inning, I'm watching the celebration. And I, I notice I've been pretty engaged with this game. But it just feels like we are moving slowly. And I was sitting right behind the driver, so I looked over his shoulder and saw that our miles per hour were just reducing. But he kept revving the engine as we got slower. Those of you who know me well know I'm not mechanical. But I know that's not how that's supposed to work. We kept going slower and slower and slower and kind of went up a little bit of a hill. And I thought, well, that can't be good. I took my AirPods out and he went, I have no power. And I went, oh, I I knew that. I'm mechanical. And eventually the bus rolled to a stop on I-20. Like not on the shoulder. No, we're in the lane. We didn't make it out of the road in the pitch black dark on a curve. And we have minors on the bus. If you've never been in a position of leadership with other people's young people, I know you can't understand this. But there's just a thing. I became a youth pastor at the age of 21. Most of my adult life, it's the reason I have so little hair. When you're responsible for other people's kids... There's just a certain level of anxiety that comes with that moment, especially when tractor trailers are going whatever they're going and not paying attention. And I went into pure Papa Bear mode. I was ready to punch the bus driver for breaking the bus as though it was his fault. I don't, I don't I had to figure something out. What do we do? We got to get these. And uh, Brian and Kendra Caffey did a great job renting this, this, uh, Charter bus for us. It's not their fault. But we're going to blame it on them because we have to have an object of our grief. And so we're we're trying to figure out what do we do. And I'm like, well, we need to call 911 to get somebody to at least have flashing lights here before somebody runs into this bus. We're on a hill now since we got to get everybody down. And people are flying down on the access road that's next to it. And by the time I went back into the bus to have somebody call 911, somebody said, well, we already have. Oh, okay. Well, that's good news. So then I walked back out to the back of the bus, and Brian and I are shining our phone flashlights at tractor trailers and encouraging them in the name of the Lord to slow down. 
and change lanes. And I called Coach Bailey because the Temple bus, the football players, they were behind us. And I called him to say, hey, here's where we are. I'm going to drop you a pin and you can come pick us up. And Dr. Weltman had already called him. He already was headed towards us. Okay, well, that's done. So I went back to tell the bus driver, hey, help's coming from the west. And he said, well, we have an empty charter bus, our company does, in Amarillo, and it's on its way, coming from the east. And and all of a sudden, there was this moment where I felt pretty useless, but also a little encouraged. At least there's a plan. I was trying to solve a situation, and help was already coming from both directions. Maybe you walked in here today. And you've tried everything you can do to fix your situation. And I just got to tell you, on the authority of who God is, helps come in every direction where he rules and reigns. And you'll never step anywhere where he doesn't rule and reign. Here's the reality about what's universally true about God this morning. He is living. He is eternal. He is sovereign. He is good and he is on the way from every direction he's the savior he always has been and he won't stop now we can trust him i can't fathom that anyone in this room is actually going to be in a lion's den this week maybe work feels like that to you none of our temple staff needs to say amen right now Maybe you're facing hardship in a relationship that means a lot to you, that that almost seems like it. But I doubt we're probably going to find ourselves in the presence of lions this week. The reality is this. Nothing's too big or too small for our God. The thing you're facing that might seem way smaller than a lion's den, it matters just as much to him. That's how good he is. You're not insignificant to him. So neither is whatever you're facing today. We can trust Him. We can trust Him. Because as long as He's alive, help is on the way.